Welcome to the Tell Me Podcast. I'm your host, Ilya. Remembrance Day has just passed. Um, I'd like to start off by saying thank you um, for your service to all the servicemen and women past and present. Um, I hope everyone had a safe and reflective day. On this episode, I have a conversation with Thomas Pecora. Tom began his career in the Central Intelligence Agency after applying through an ad in the newspaper. Uh, you heard that right. After applying... Uh, on the newspaper, Tom joined the CIA. Fast forward to nearly three decades um, operating in some of the most dangerous places in the world, Tom shares his story in his book, Guardian, Life in the Crosshairs of the CIA's War on Terror. Uh, Tom sort of admitted to me that he was a bit of a Forrest Gump in the CIA, often uh, being present at some of the most pivotal moments in modern history. He was part of the first CIA program that later evolved into uh, what's now known as the Global Response Staff, or GRS, which was made famous in the book and movie 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. Tom currently lives in the Philippines and continues to apply uh, the skill sets and uh, tradecraft that he learned in the CIA uh, to train and teach as a situational awareness specialist, uh, master practitioner with the Arcuri Group. You can buy Tom's book, Follow Tom on social media and keep up to date um, using the links in the description. Without further ado, episode three, Thomas Pecora. Hi, Tom. Thanks for uh, being on the podcast. Uh, I know there's a bit of a time difference. Uh, You're in Southeast Asia at the moment, so uh, thanks for making the time. Um, You've you've got a lot going on in your life, so I I really appreciate um, you being on this podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so the way that I format the part, the podcast is basically um, sort of just going through chronologically, you know, your life from your early days uh, into your career, uh, leaving, uh, we'll talk about it, but the CIA, um, and then, you know, what you're up to these days and, and what your future is sort of um, uh, looking like. So, um, yeah, could you tell me about, you know, your upbringing? Where were you born? Uh, what, what was your family life like? What was going on uh, in the world at that time? <laughs> well, I grew up in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is about 100 miles north of, of Chicago. Uh, and Milwaukee is known for Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Harley Davidson motorcycles, and things like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's it's a it was a pretty standard upbringing in the way you know I, I lived on the south side of Milwaukee in in a kind of a smaller town. Um, the most significant thing was the fact that uh, all of I'm one of five boys. I'm the second youngest. And we all ended up in wrestling. And uh, uh, there's a predisposition, I think. (laughs) We were kind of uh, energetic and aggressive. So it it fit the bill. And um, I ended up uh, uh, being pretty good at wrestling. Well, I ended up being the first state champion for my high school. And then I went on a a wrestling scholarship to Marquette University, which is uh, a Jesuit college that's right downtown Milwaukee. And I wrestled there on a a scholarship. I wrestled division one and um, I made it to the nationals uh, division one nationals twice. 
And I had the honor of uh, wrestling some of the best guys in, in the United States, and they turned out to be in the world because um, I've wrestled uh, two Olympic gold medalists and, and some silver medalists. And um, so that's been great. In fact, I wrestled uh, John Smith, who's uh, probably the, the winningest wrestler in U.S. history. Maybe changing soon, but um, so uh, that was a, a big influence on me. I, I ended up in I dabbled in uh, Marine Officer Candidate School. I went to the first increment, which is six, six weeks. Yeah. And then I decided to go to grad school. Uh, ended up um, going to England on a work exchange program between undergrad and grad. And uh, that was pretty eventful in the sense that I, I got to be a bartender in London. That was amazing <laughs> for me. It was my first time overseas and uh, had, a, had a huge influence on my life in a bunch of different ways. Um, and then I came back and went to grad school and uh, coached wrestling. And um, then I uh, came out of grad school and there was really no work at the time. And uh, the, we called the Rust Belt, the whole Midwest with no uh, yeah. stock no employment. And so I um, saw an ad in the newspaper. I was doing three jobs at the time, I was coaching wrestling at a, at a college. I was um, doing enumeration, which is uh, basically like the crisscross directory. I'd go door to door and and take down information on how many people were there and that. And then um, I was also working at uh, JC Penney's catalog warehouse. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, you, you work, you gotta work. So exactly. uh, I saw that in the newspaper, my Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee Journal, which was uh, you know, the main newspaper there. And it was for uh, the CIA. And I said, wow, that sounds interesting. It didn't give much detail. So I, I applied and then several months later I get a call and I thought it was some of my buddies giving me the rads and I almost hung up on the guy. <laughs> Thank God I didn't. So I ended up in this um, uh, getting uh, interviewed in, uh, in, in Milwaukee. And then I, they flew me out to DC and I went to a battery of tests, uh, polygraph, background investigation, which took many, many months. And then I ended up coming on board and they decided to put me in security as a, uh, what they call a multidiscipline security officer. So it's um, MDSO, which is a program where it's like the officer version of security. The, the, um, the uniform division is, is, um, does, uh, they're police officers and they do our, our uh, patrols around our uh, perimeters of our buildings and, yeah. and do that. That's the uniform vision. We're the officer vision and we're, you have to be college grad. And then you go into these um, different areas, uh, most dis different disciplines in security. And because security is a, is a very large, especially for the CIA, it's a very large entity because you have everything from polygraph officers and, and people that go into the counterintelligence. You have people who go into physical security. You have people with that, that, that are in personnel security. Yeah. Uh, you have people who are doing protection work. At the time, a very small number, just doing the um, director. And uh, so I ended up coming on board with them and um, uh, going through training. And then um, my first assignment was doing background investigations and out on the west coast yeah wow so uh the cia newspaper ad just just had you hooked yeah. uh, what, what, what time period was this i was uh, uh 1988 and i came on board and, and uh uh five september uh 1989 five september has a lot of significance for me because uh, of that date that's what they call your eod date your entrance on duty and it's something that tra travels with you throughout your career and then there was an incident in Somalia that happened on that date where uh, I survived, which is a good thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. Um, what, do you remember the ad at all? Like what was written on, on the, um, the newspaper? Yeah, it was very generic. Yeah. It said, you know, 
it was basically kind of like a generic personnel uh, HR type ad, you know, would you like to work for the federal government? And I tell you the truth, since I was a little kid, I always wanted to work for the federal government. I, I look back now and realize that I had, uh, when I was about seven or eight, I, I saw an ad that the FBI had out. Now, they, it, was, it was PR for them. They would, because they would literally, if you, if you sent a letter to them, and it didn't matter how old you were, they would send you this big package, this big um, manila envelope full of brochures and and a, there's a letter in there and oh, oh yeah, they're working you for a later hire. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a hard, hard to mind campaign. Oh yeah, <laughs> for a young kid, I got I got mail from the FBI. <laughs> it wasn't a, a warrant, so uh, <laughs> yeah. so it was uh, so I, I was really interested in that stuff and I. Uh, and but I didn't know anybody in the federal government. I'm from Milwaukee, it's far from DC. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have any other than that six weeks in, in the Marines, um, you know, doing through that training course. I had no background with um, any of the martial type stuff. Yeah. I just had an interest. And I was a voracious reader of sci-fi and uh, war things. I was um, I really liked the Vietnam stories and, and World War II, especially commando stuff. Yeah. So I, I had, and then I got into interested in, in um, terrorism. Yeah. So I was reading a lot about that when I went to grad school. So this worked out pretty well for me. And that the fact that I got into security, security at that time was a, a bit on the mellow side, but uh, 89 uh, was just the beginning of when things picked up. Yeah, so, I was going to uh, say sort of my generation, you know, it was that September 11th, 2001 moment where, you know, terrorism just became a household sort of term term that was used. Um, but you know, in the eighties and early nineties, there was you know hijackings, and it wasn't it wasn't new that planes were being hijacked. It had been going on for ages. Um, so that that's that's an interesting time period to be in eighty nine, sort of oh, in, yeah. in the nineties. Um, did, did you have anyone in your family sort of serve in the military or law enforcement or anything like that? No, other than my father was a uh, uh, was in World War Two. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so some some interesting stories when you were growing up. Then, actually, he 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 was on an island, and he was a more of a logistics guy. Okay, so yeah. he didn't really have a lot of stories, yeah. and uh, so you know, other than the fact that he he was kind of like a bit of a scrounger, and he, okay. he kind of made some money on on the deal when he was out there selling to the Australians. Uh, the the entrepreneurial was, spirit there. Oh yeah, he was. That was what he was, and he was a he later became an accountant. So. Okay. I, I grew up with a lot of money jokes. Yeah, nice. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I got I got a ton of them. So, and everybody gets subjected to it because it's like uh, it's hereditary. But yeah, um, nothing. My influence was books. Yeah, it was the library. I love the library, and uh, and I was into all that adventure stuff, uh, yeah. James Bond, and all that. I mean, I was to to the eyeballs. So yeah. when I got in, we, we used to laugh. All of us when we were new, you know, going through our training, we're like. How could we have turned down this job? If you have if you have any interest in that area in your life as a kid or whatever, how can you turn down the opportunity to work for this organization you know, with, with the history? And of course, I didn't know about all the bureaucracy that goes with all that stuff. Sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and what was the um, so you had your um, EOD uh, date? Uh, what, what what was the train up like when you first started? Um, you know, what kind of courses did you have to do? How long was it? Uh, I was waiting for the for the training course to start, so they put me into an office like an in, as an intern. Yeah. And uh, I met a guy who later became a, a big influence in, uh, for me for a while. 
and he was taking me around. It was physical security, and we were looking at uh, the physical security at, at these different offices. And uh, he was trying to enlighten me on a lot of the bureaucratic stuff, and I just could couldn't hear it because I had just no comprehension of what he's talking about. I've never worked for a big organization. <laughs> yeah. And um, later on, he became uh, he, he developed um, a protection unit uh, to protect our pe- our people in dangerous places. And right. um, uh, what's, what's funny is he, he got selected as the first chief of that office to, to do, to set up this training program and, um, going, you know, that, that's kind of fast forward. I'll go back up, but it'll come into play. I went out, uh, I got, I go through the training course, which was, um, was about eight weeks and we're trained on a variety of things. We do some firearms. We do a, a little surveillance work we do, but it's, it's, um, more fam than, than real training. And then we were trained on background investigations. Yeah. And then we get sent out to a, a, a location. We had field offices to do background investigations because we were doing our own back then. And uh, so I went out to the West Coast and I was doing backgrounds out there. And to tell you the truth, it was uh, seriously anticlimactic. <laughs> um, I was doing engineers and janitors and things like that. There's nothing interesting about, you know, after about your 200th engineer working, <laughs> you know, on, on, uh, on classified projects, just like, they don't do much. There's not much there. <laughs> oh, it's, it's getting boring. I'm thinking, is this what it was all about? And I was coaching wrestling and I decided, that's when I ended up wrestling uh, John Smith. I, I decided to go back into wrestling and I kind of, I went for, to, for the Olympic trials yeah, wow. uh, and I ended up wrestling him. Um, and we were, uh, it was, it was a close match until the second period. <laughs> zero, zero, first, <laughs> second period, he beat me up pretty good, but he was on his way to his second gold medal. So yeah, I, I as a caveat, but <laughs> I was pretty much at the, what am I doing here? And then uh, uh, an opportunity came through um, the grapevine saying, Hey, we're, they're looking for people who want to go into this new protection unit. So I, I applied, you know, just sent my interest in and they, uh, they accepted me and I flew back to Washington and um, we did eight weeks uh, serious training. And it was, it was in a developmental stage. I was in the first official uh, POC training class, and it's POC stands for a Protective Operations Cadre. Okay. And the cadre means it's not a full-time gig. You know, right. they'll, they'll train you up, you go back to your unit, and when they need you, they'll ask <laughs> to get like, you. Like an on-call sort of situation. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, who's running the training? My old, uh, the guy that's kind of mentoring. Yeah. Wow. So I, I got in on that, and then um, uh, I didn't get assigned to any action right away. I, I'm my, went to my second job, which was in the security duty office, which is the main ops center, security ops center for the uh, CIA headquarters. And we have a variety of buildings around the DC area and it covers all that. And uh, think security and a large compound and anything and everything is security related we dealt with. Okay. Fire, um, medicals. Um, uh, and uh, I was one, I was the second newest duty officer one morning in January of 93 when uh, a Pakistani terrorist attacked the front gate of the CIA headquarters. And this is prior to the first attack on the World Trade Center. Okay. And uh, yeah, uh, he shot up the front gate, uh, killed two and wounded three. And um, later on, we got him. Uh, We were able to, working with the FBI, we we captured him in in, uh, Pakistan, brought him back for trial and he was uh, convicted and, and executed. Yeah. His name is Niramal Kanzi. And uh, so I was involved. I was right there that day. I ended up calling the ambulance and the police 
and uh, I work that I end up briefing the acting director, which for a newbie, basically back from the field and second job is pretty nerve wracking. That's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a, it was, it was a watershed moment for me. It was, it changed my life. It was from that moment on, you know, I'm, I'm in, that's the game. Yeah. And, uh, and then after that, I was assigned uh, as part of the cadre. I went to Somalia where I was working, um, protecting our case officers, our, our guys going out recruiting spies. Yeah. And if I use the term, you don't understand, but it, we, we're full of jargon. Um, we call it alphabet soup, you know, it's, so <laughs> our, our, they, they say, oh, you, these are the spies. Well, no, our guys, they kind of act like spies, but they're recruiting spies, sure, but they're yeah. the case officers, right? And uh, so what happened was there was, there was some events that caused us to believe that we needed to have a protection unit that was capable of doing clandestine protection, yeah. low profile, because these people operated uh, in the shadows, yeah. our case officers. So, um, but in this case, it was a, it was a, a supporting the, um, the U.S. military during a humanitarian mission in Mogadishu, Somalia. It was uh, Operation Restore Hope. Yeah. And um, during my time there, um, things really got bad. And there was a, a, a really bad guy that, that was a good guy before he turned bad named Farah Adid, Mohammed Farah Adid. And uh, so they, they wanted him badly enough that they actually sent in Delta Force. Or actually, it was the Rangers, wink, wink, Delta Force <laughs> is better than the Rangers. So, um, so I was taking our case officers all around Mogadishu in these low profile movements. Unfortunately, we had two armored cars, one that we had to give uh, away to another unit that was up in North Mog. And the other one was too high profile. It was a white uh, suburban. And yeah, yeah, don't blend in there. Yeah, well, and uh, because everything's like, there's smaller cars than that. We did mostly um toyotas and in one case this, we were driving a zuzu trooper and we had a pickup yeah. truck and um so we were working directly against the deed and he knew it and he uh wanted our heads so he put a reward out for, for four of us it's a four-man team yeah and um and they we would listen in on his radio traffic his guys would be sitting up setting up ambushes for us and uh they were always looking for the white whale which is the suburban? The suburban, wow! Oh, well, we never drove the suburban. <laughs> but anyway, we uh, was it was just after Delta got in. I had um, I'd actually helped Delta uh, set up. They had they arrived and they didn't have any admin. They didn't transport. It was there mainly their officers getting ready for the main element to come in. Yeah. So we were offered up to do protection for them as they're moving from the main camp, um, which is the UN compound, which is in Mogadishu to the, the military camp, which is on the air, airport proper, yeah. middle water. So we'd be traveling back and forth, uh, taking these guys through some dangerous territory. And um, uh, they, they were nice enough, uh, Colonel McKnight, who was a major character in the Black Hawk Down movie and um, was involved in heavily in that, uh, in the battle. He, um, he was one of the guys we, we, we drove around and he gave, uh, he sent uh, each of us, uh, the four of us who, who were working with him, a certificate of appreciation for, so uh, that, that was uh, pretty cool. Yeah, the, considering that he went through a battle, got shot and, and actually remembered afterwards at this, and got it to us. Yeah, it's pretty, it, he's, he's one of those characters, um, you know, in, in obviously portrays heavily in the book and the, and the film as well, just, just an incredible um, story you know, in himself, uh, outside of the entire um, situation that was happening in uh, in Mogadishu at the time. So, am I correct in understanding that 
this was your first sort of international deployment? Yes. So, yes, so it was my wall. Actually, it was my first um, protection of deployment, correct? Okay. Overseas. Yeah. I'd done a little work in the States. We do a lot of, we do some other things in the States. But, so, um, so the yeah. first trip out of the States before the CIA was to London, where you worked as a bartender. And then the pretty much the second trip out of the States was uh, Mogadishu, Somalia. Well, I, actually, I did, a, I did a little trip to Asia before that, which okay. was, uh, <laughs> I was working at an embassy uh, doing security for some active, uh, construction we were doing. Okay. And I got a chance to travel on a little bit. But in terms of really work, r- real work, uh, that was the first one. Yeah, and it a- was about things on fire. I mean, uh, and, and it, was, it was so colorful. And um, I mean, we flew in to from... Uh, from the States into Nairobi. And then we caught our, uh, we had an aircraft. Um, and uh, if you know about our history, we've, we've had aircraft all for a very long time. We've, and in Vietnam, it's called uh, Air America. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that's right. <laughs> we have our element. Anyways, this one plane is, uh, that took us from Nairobi to, um, uh, to Mogadishu was um, a, a DC-3 which is na- known as a C-47 in military jargon okay, or known as this by its nickname, the Goonie Bird. Goonie and it's Bird. one of the, yeah, it's, it's still flying to this day. It's still being used as one of the oldest cargo aircraft. It's like a mini C-130. Yeah. But this thing is, was, it didn't go anywhere without the, all the airplane nuts looking and staring at it because it was that much of a, it's like a classic car. Yeah. It's like an iconic so sort flying, of, yeah. Yeah. Everybody look, comes and looks at it. So it really wasn't <laughs> as low profile as we probably should have, but That's it was incredible. a great. So we fly in on that, you know, and then from that moment on, it was just one wild moment after another. <laughs> and while, while you were there, um, you know, this being sort of that, that first hair raising real world mission, did you, um, you know, did you think the training was enough? Uh, obviously the training can only prepare you so much. Um, but was it a time where you had the ability to really hone in on your tradecraft and, and, you know, all the skill sets, or were you just sort of trying to survive? Um, what was your mindset like, you know, at, at that time? Yeah, kind of both, kind of both of those. I mean, we were new. We knew we were in a new era in terms of we were, we were, we were developing our craft yeah. because uh, really this level of clandestine protection wasn't around. Sure. Uh, I mean, to give you an idea, um, we were, this unit was only exposed really after Benghazi. Okay. Yeah. Benghazi is the first exposure to the world of this clandestine protection unit, which the name changed to the GRS. GRS, but, yeah. um, GRS Global's response to that. Um, or the security, the security annex team, yeah. the annex security team, you know, from the book, uh, 13 hours in the movie. Yeah. So um, we were learning as we were going, we were, adapting because we didn't have armored cars we didn't have we didn't have body armor really other than pistol rate stuff so it was a real uh learning experience and training wise looking back now i realize we were woefully um under trained for a war zone yeah okay um but for for more civilized places um our training was pretty good but then we we learned more as we went along Sure. But, um, but some of the training we got was from uh, an L- a school that had been around for a long time. Um, and they specialized in counterterrorism type activities and, and surveillance work 
and ambush, counter ambush. So they taught us some things about how to deal with an ambush that saved our lives. No doubt. That, 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 uh, that definitely was, um, an application of training saves the day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite quotes is, you know, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to your um, level of training. Um, and, and so, yeah, so, uh, as we discussed before, Black Hawk Down, um, is, is, you know, what was made famous in that situation in, in uh, Somalia, you, you left just prior to that incident. Is that, is that correct? Yes. Um, I left the, uh, the, the, uh, the 11th of September. Yeah. We got shot up on the 5th of September. Yeah. My AED date, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. So, um, and then happy, we weren't happy on. anniversary. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the, the, the good part about that was, well, at that point, the threat level was so high that we basically, after we got hit, we said no more land movements by, uh, you know, on the vehicles. It's yeah. just too, too. Because at the time, the truth was we were the only ones making moves on yeah. in the streets. Uh, us, the military really wasn't moving around on vehicles. Um, some of the, uh, the press was, and they were even killed. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, in fact, uh, we were written about in the Time Magazine articles. Uh, covert intelligence t- team riding the dusty roads of Mogadishu. <laughs> I saw that when I landed on, in London on my way home. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there I was reading an article and there it was. <laughs> so, oh, it's cool. Yeah. Um, and so when you got back stateside, um, you know, what was the, uh, what was the feeling that you guys, you know, just wanted to keep going, get out there again? keep doing these real world missions or was there a bit of time to debrief, you know, maybe make some SOPs or like, you know, tactics, yeah, training procedures. It, stuff? Was, uh, well, it was pretty traumatic because um, uh, our deputy got shot in the car. Okay. Yeah. We ended up running into an ambush that had been set up uh, to kill off these, these Nigerian peacekeepers. Yeah. And we drove into the tail end of it and um, the Nigerian peacekeepers didn't do so well. They got killed and a couple of them got uh, skinned alive. Yeah. And uh, they were filmed uh, by a news crew being dragged to the streets and jumped on in their skivvies. Anyway, pretty rough. And then um, we weren't, I'll I'll be somewhat kind. The agency wasn't prepared for this level of trauma. Yeah. We're not used to the war zone or we had, where we were back in the day, maybe in Vietnam, but it's been a long time since we were deployed in that dangerous of a location so there was a bit of uh, turmoil back in washington on how to deal with this situation later on um a number of us seven of us uh there are four uh four four guys in our team we're a four-man team and then uh uh, one of the guys was on another team he had been on out there twice so uh, seven of us total were awarded the uh, second highest honor for valor in the, the agency, the intelligence stuff. Intelligence star, yeah. Um, to give you some context, um, if you die in the service of the agency, um, they they will chisel a star on the wall in the um, in the main entranceway. Yeah. And that's our hall of honor. And so, uh, yeah, if we wouldn't wouldn't have made it, we would have gotten the star on there. Instead, we got one in a box. Yeah, which is much better. Uh, so yeah, so it, it, it was a bit. It, it had a had an impact on pretty much all of us, and we. I still wanted to go out and do things, but it was um, 
it was a little bit of getting back on the horse. Yeah. Cause it was pretty traumatic. Yeah. So I'd imagine as well, like I, I know, um, you know, these days talking about mental health, um, you know, talking about your, your feelings, all that sort of stuff. It's, it's becoming pretty commonplace, pretty, pretty mainstream and, and rightfully so I'd imagine in that situation where you're in these covert sort of positions, these, you know, clandestine missions, you're, you're not really able to speak to anyone about any of this stuff outside of the agency. Um, you know, it's not like you could go home and, and speak to, you know, your family about it. Um, you know, what, what was that like? Uh, did, did, did you guys have good sort of mechanisms within the team to, to sort of, you know, vent and, and get your, your, your stuff on the table? Mm, yes and no. And you, you hit a very good point. And it's something that I'm, I'm really happy that we're moving, we've moved so far in the right direction. Mm. But I can give you my experience, which was there, there was nothing for us. Yeah, We were, were required to go to the Office of Medical Services and do a 30 minute debrief. Right. Yeah. With, hot, hot debrief sort of thing. With a, with, a, with a psychologist. And that it was a culture of you don't talk about this stuff. And I was, I was undercover. So I, I, I never, for 23 out of 24 years, I didn't work with the CIA, winky, winky. Okay. <laughs> um, and so I definitely couldn't tell people outside. Yeah. Um, my family didn't really know a whole lot of what I did until my book came out. That was one yeah. of the great things about the book. I got a chance to have it vetted. So I, so I knew what I could legally tell my family and they got to read and understand more about what I did for 24 years than they would ever have been able to pick up. Yeah. And also you don't tell them about dangerous places you go to. Uh, when I was posted to Iraq, they knew I was in Iraq, but every time they heard about a bombing in Iraq, they, they were freaking out. So, but going back to the P PTSD type stuff, um, I definitely, uh, th that was the start of my PTSD journey. And um, there was really not, no, no help. And uh, you, if, you, if you go see somebody, it's on your record. Yeah. So you don't. Yeah, you don't want to and risk that. Yeah. No. In fact, I hid uh, pretty much all of my uh, issues until I, after I retired. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll come to that as well um, as, as we go on with the, with the podcast. Um, I'd imagine keeping things a secret. It probably was handy having your dad, uh, you know, being an accountant with those accountant jokes. You could just sort of write it off as, you know, I'm just a paper pusher in the CIA. You're not really doing much. Was that sort of the cover well, that you I, had? I, uh, when I was, my family, I, they, they knew I was insecure and they did that. Yeah. I did some protection stuff and background investigations, you know, the mild stuff that I would yeah. tell them. Um, in terms of people outside, I had a variety of things I would tell them. You know, I was a civilian employee of the army or whatever, and it would change depending on where I was based and what I was doing. Um, I had to learn to bore people on aircraft because they'll sit, you know, sit down. Like, what do you do? And, yeah. uh, you know, I had to learn to to dance because you're in Washington D.C. and people know a lot of stuff. Yeah. So you start asking, you start answering, and they know about something, and you're really kind of lying. They'll they, they'll call you out. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so it was, and then I I ended up in a, a really clandestine unit. Uh, in fact, um, I think my book is the only time they've ever approved any discussion of that unit and uh it's a counterterrorism unit i was on i was detailed over partly because of my security experience because uh, they sent me to some really bad places like Khartoum and sudan yeah. and uh, uh, northern africa and, uh, some of the places 
Was and, Sudan uh, like around the time of like sort of the Darfur, um, you know? Um, no, it was, um, it was in the 95, 96 okay. time frame. Okay, 94, yeah. 95. This is when uh, Carlos the Jackal was discovered okay. and was taken into custody by the French. Yeah. Well, not really. <laughs> we, we caught it. We, we, we discovered him. And what I'm telling you is already out. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of the guys I work with was a, is a, uh, a uh, special forces legend from Vietnam. And he was a contractor working for us in this special unit. Yeah. And we were tracking and looking for um, all these bad guys. And we yeah. were, I, this is a, uh, a couple months before I got to Khartoum. And this guy named Billy Waugh um, was out looking for um, uh, somebody who we were tracking to try to get at Carlos the Jackal. Yeah. We, we wanted to track that person back to Carlos. And it was his girlfriend slash wife. And um, so we were tracking her, or Billy was in Khartoum, and he, she goes to a lip, liposuction clinic and out walks this guy with her. And at that point, he's like, oh, my God, it's Carlos the Jackal. Wow. So he's, he's ducked down in the car. And all you hear from probably inside the car is click, 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 as he's, he's taking all these pictures. And they, photos, they yeah. track him back. And we, we basically uh, found out where he was, got all the information. And we gave it to the French and basically said, if you don't go pick him up, we'll tell everybody you didn't. <laughs> so they did. And all this was in his book, which was not approved. Oh, no. So really, he was supposed to work with us after he wrote that book, but it's called <laughs> Hunting Jackal, and it's written by uh, Billy Watt and by a legend in Special Forces. Yeah, was and, he uh, part of a uh, McAfee song? Was that? Yes, he was. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's one right. of the most colorful characters in that. Incredible. And he was also later on. He went into Afghanistan after uh, 9/11 at the age of 70. She was with our teams in Afghanistan, going after Al Qaeda. Oh wow. That's incredible. At seven, bad ass too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. In a profession exactly. where uh, you know there's not many old men left, that's uh, that's incredible. Oh my god, tougher than nails. Yeah. Yeah. I work with him in a variety of places. He, he's just an incredible dude, and larger than life. You, you could, if you really gave it his true story, no, he'd believe it. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and at the time uh, when we were in Khartoum, it was full of all the bad guys because that's where they are in art. That's yeah. where they were safe. So you had. Carlos the Jackal, you had Abu, uh, Abu Nidal, you had elements of Hezbollah, Hamas, and uh, this character named Osama bin Laden. And oh, yeah. in, in building. He wasn't as big as the other guys at the time, but we were watching him. Um, and at that point, we, were mainly, we weren't in the, the aggressive mode yet. We were still too much in the passive collection. Yeah. Um, and I guess, like, holistically as well, if you're looking at you know, the military, um, included in, in the other agencies you know it was a bit more of like a garrison style military at the time it wasn't a war fighting you know machine that it is post 9-11 um mm -hmm. so so not not as many operations i suppose going on worldwide certainly not in the counterterrorism realm um I, I would imagine um so that was was it 95 you're saying in sudan yeah yeah i worked uh, i worked for three for two years on that um and that was as close to the James Bond as, as you can get. I mean, I was traveling around, um, uh, not as me, and not definitely not as government. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm half Italian, so I have this Mediterranean look, and I throw a mustache on, and I'm 
joining all the rest of the guys in the <laughs> yeah. Middle East yeah. and other places. So I, I um, so that worked out really well. And did uh, you have any, another... any language mm-hmm. skills or anything like that to to you know help you blend in? No, or any no, I knew I had some Spanish, but but I never actually deployed anywhere for that. Yeah. Uh, um, but I um, but the training I went through was the second longest training program in the agency. It was it was this serious deep dive uh, of into surveillance work, counter surveillance, and terrorist operations. It was um, it was amazing. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was um, the yeah it was it, it was for a security guy to get into that was a fluke in a way. I had to really push to get there, and because. I was out of security. I was literally detailed out. Yeah. And um, I was with the counterterrorism center actually seven years in my career. Incredible. And uh, that was, that was the, the first of my de- detailing the counterterrorism center. The second time was um, when I was doing uh, uh, presidential protection training for foreign leaders. So I was okay. out training. Um, like I, I trained. Uh, uh, oh, <laughs> Uh, the head of the Venezuela, Chavez. Oh, yep. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no big deal. Help. Yeah, God. Let me tell you something. They all know he was knew he was a nutter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we didn't give him six months. We didn't think he was going to make it six months. Yeah. Wow. Trained him. I did a ton of training down in Bogota. Trained there. Presidential protection. I did seven trips down there. I, I was the South America guy because my Spanish. So yeah. I worked at uh, Argentina. Uh, I worked with some incredible people. Um, yeah. using some retired secret service guys, guys that were on, that were like the protection um, uh, OICs for, um, well, uh, Carter, uh, Ford, Reagan. Yeah. In fact, one of the guys I work with um, saved Ronald Reagan's life, a guy named okay. Jerry Parr. Was he the one uh, in the shooting where he turned towards yeah. the, the shooter? No, he's the guy that, that, that threw Ronald Reagan into the car in the, okay, yeah. and, then, and then checked him over. And when you saw Ronald Reagan having a little bit of, of um, froth of blood in the corner of his mouth, he said, well, we need to go to the hospital. And Ronald uh, Reagan said, no, not out, no way. <laughs> and yeah. Jerry looked at the driver and said, we're going. Yeah. And he saved life because he, uh, he would have died if they would have been, I think, two more minutes and he would have been dead. Oh, what a story. That's incredible. Um, yeah. So 90, I'm just trying to think of, you know, globally, was that around the time of, um, you know, Kosovo and, 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 and that incident happening? That was, uh, that, was uh, late, that was earlier. Okay. I ended up um, at the Because you were there for under- that as well, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I, was in, I was in Bosnia. I was, I was deployed to Bosnia to work. Uh, what happened was, it was, I went home for Christmas. I was uh, back in Milwaukee and I get a call. It says, uh, it's the day after Christmas. It says, you have to come back. And like, I, I tell my family, oh, there's a training opportunity in Europe. And they're all looking at me like, oh, come on. You're going to Bosnia. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, the war was what's going on at that time. And what happened was Colonel, uh, G- uh, General Nash, who's the head of the uh, all the US forces in Bosnia had just come into an area called Tuzla. And he had set up a base called Eagle Base. And he was worried about the NGOs in the area, non-government organizations, aid groups, because they were infiltrated with terrorists. Yeah. And uh, somebody on his staff who was an uh, uh, agency guy who was on his military um, reserve duty. Yeah. 
told the general that we have an element that does this type of uh, counterterrorism stuff. So yeah. General Nash calls back to Washington and says, I want this team. So I was selected as one of a three-man team that we were called the ethnic team because okay. we were all, yeah, look like something different. Yeah. <laughs> Navy and Russian and a Czech and me. And uh, they spoke Serbo-Croat and Russian and I spoke nothing. I was the, <laughs> the, the mute. The, the, the mute. <laughs> and we, you know, it was cold as hell uh, in, in Tuzla at that time. So they gave us 1500 bucks. We went to REI and we bought all that Gore-Tex stuff. You know, stuff. <laughs> then we fly into- We really um, blend in with the Gore-Tex, yeah. <laughs> well, we didn't know what we were getting into, right? So then we get into split Croatia. That's our jumping off point into Tuzla. We get briefed and it's like, oh, we can't wear any of this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> not, a, not a bit of it. So we had to go down to the local market and buy used clothes. And we found out that Tuzla had been under siege for two years. Yeah, so right. they had nothing. So nobody had boots, nobody had hats, and nobody had gloves. Oh, so I'm walking around in these beat up old dress shoes <laughs> in the <laughs> snow and slush, freezing my butt off. I look a little like a little Eskimo because I've got so many layers. <laughs> and we're going from coffee place to coffee place trying to stay warm because we're out and about. And, but it was, it was awesome. There was 50 days. We would spot activity and tell General Nash and sell, sell helicopters. It was, uh, it was pretty good. It was pretty good, good, good stuff. And am, and then, am I correct uh, in assuming that um, General Nash, he sort of had the mindset to have, you know, a really good sort of strong posture militarily, um, com, you know, compared to other uh, incidences in the past. I guess it's lessons learned from things absolutely. like Black Hawk Down, that sort of thing. You hit it on the head, exactly. General Nash did not want to have another Somalia, et cetera. Yeah. So his, his philosophy, and I learned this later as I did research for my book, his philosophy is, is, is if, if 10 are good, we're sending 20. Yeah, okay, yeah. And I think, I think that philosophy is what kept the, the elements that were fighting in those areas, the, the Bosnian, the Serbs, and the Croats, from kicking off. Yeah. They, they, we, we threw the intimidation factor as hard as we could because uh, unlike the Somalis who are, who are you know, rudimentary, yeah. these guys were fighters. Yeah. We didn't want to tangle with them. And uh, I think it worked. Uh, yeah. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. Um, but what a lot of people don't know is we've never left Bosnia. And that's still, still we, a have presence. A, we have a presence and that's to keep things in perspective. Yeah, because yeah. Um, unfortunately, when you have a vacuum, um, that, that whole area used to be called Yugoslavia. Yeah. And Tito ran it with an iron fist, and it was a beautiful vacation spot. But when he died, the, the, the patriarch was gone. There, was no, there, there were no parents in the room anymore. Yeah. So the siblings just went ape. Lots of infighting. And, and, I, and I'm not, no offense to the, the Serbs, Croats, and, and the Bosnians. I'm just uh, describing... Um, it went, it went really south. And you got these groups that had been lived together for um, well, decades and decades and decades. And all of a sudden, you know, atrocities and uh, snipers and it was horrific. And the yeah. stuff that I saw when I was in Tuzla, uh, I saw such levels of mental illness and PTSD from the war on these kids and these people. Um, it was just, I mean, I've never been in place as dark. The, nobody smiled, nobody laughed. Uh, it was horrific. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's uh, I, I, I was only, oh, I don't know, like 
nine or 10 years old, I think, <laughs> you know, sort of in a grade five, four or five. Um, and I, I still remember the sort of, um, that was, you know, my first piece of global news that I, I, I kind of remember to this day. Um, our school did, you know, the charity drives and all that sort of stuff for, um, you know, supplying clothes and that. Um, but yeah, I just reading up on it now as an adult, is just, you know, some of the atrocities were, were, were as bad as anything else that we've ever had, uh, you know, in, in sort of modern history. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, yeah, so once you wind up from that, uh, that deployment, let's, let's push ahead, uh, maybe to where you were around sort of the September 11th time period. This is, you know, four years, oh, five yeah. years afterwards. So what happened after that? I went, I did, uh, I went back to the, to the park and I did, uh, I was mainly helping with some administration and some training. I, I brought more tradecraft back to, to the, because of my background, I, I worked ops. Uh, and I worked with case ops. I mean, I was, I was, I was an operations guy at that point, right? Yeah. So I went back to the park and I said, okay, we need to up our game in terms of our our protection guys have to understand ops. And the yeah. only way to do that make them do operations. So I trained them. I put together a training program for to so that they would learn how operations were really done. Then they would have to do them. And uh, that, and then I. I got an opportunity to go uh, do uh, protective operations uh, um, training to foreign dignitaries. I did that for three years, traveled all over and it was great. And then I came back and I went right back into the POC as a senior team leader. And I did that for two years and I worked in some pretty hairy places. And um, that, and at a certain point I realized, you know, I was, I went through a counter assaulting course and I was the oldest guy there. And uh, yeah, yeah, which I got a lot of looks until I started uh, doing quite well on the activity. So yeah. they, 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 you know, at first they're like, "Who's the little gray-haired dude?" And uh, yeah. so I ended up, um, but it, I wanted to move on to something um, a little different. So um, an opportunity opened up in Asia as a, what they call an area security officer, which is like the head of security for that region. And okay. at the time, there were only maybe eleven in the world. Yeah, well. and uh, in a- and especially in, in Asia, there's been a lot. There were a lot of terrorists, active, especially in the Philippines. Abu Sayyaf and that Ram- sort of thing. Yeah, but Ramzi Youssef, the guy who who did, who who developed the idea of the aircraft as a bomb and all. Okay. That, yeah. He was. He had been almost captured in in uh, Manila when he uh, set his apartment on fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there was a lot of history there, right? So I get I get out and uh, I I land right in the middle of. Uh, kidnapping situation in the Philippines. Wow. Uh, the, the Burnhams, which was a missionary group and a couple other Americans, got grabbed by Abu Sayyaf and they were, they, they took them by boat down to the southern part of the Philippines uh, in the, near Zamboanga. And we were working to get them back. And we were working with um, the US Mills started getting involved. And I got very involved in, in supporting uh, all the operations. Um, so I built some facilities for them down in um, down in Zamboanga, down in the southern part of the Philippines, and uh, I supported their operations, and I was uh, running around like a madman, and then, well, but prior to that, just before I re- really got involved in that, that September 11th happened, because I got there in June. September 11th happened, I was, I got a text message, uh, get to a TV, and so it's nighttime there, it's morning in New York. Uh, I turned my TV out just in time to see the uh, see that a plane had hit the first tower. And I, um, we had a combo guy and we had a technical operations guy. He was a, like a bomb tech, he was a special forces guy, legend, who will remain nameless. But um, 
another name, uh, another incredible special forces guy I got the chance to work. He's, he was retired from special forces and he worked for us. Yeah. So I knew those two guys didn't have, uh, they were brand new, so they didn't have a TV. And so I've got a cell phone in one ear and the landline another, and I'm thick, I'm telling them what's going on, on the TV. And then the second plane hit. And, um, and then when the tower went down, um, we knew, um, you know, being, being in the agency and, and taking our responsibility serious about keeping the threats from the homeland, we knew that uh, we we're never going to be the same. And the, the most, the real surreal part of that was thinking about what was going on in the States and New York, especially the next morning when I had to go and do some normal administrative stuff at a mall in yeah. Manila. And I'm walking around and the Filipinos had no clue about anything. Yeah. They hadn't really followed it. And they're walking around like life is absolutely the same. And I'm walking around with a whole different mindset. I mean, we, the gloves are off. We're going full on. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I got involved in a lot of stuff. I mean, uh, bin Laden sent one, uh, well, he had a guy named Humbali, his main emissary for all of Asia. That was the main planner. And he's the guy that was going after the Singapore embassy. But when that fell through, the backup was to bomb the U.S. embassy in Manila. Right. Uh, and he's using an, an Indonesian bomber who was really good um, in a bad way. It was, it was very, very proficient at bomb making. Yeah. Um, he, he had hit Manila with five bombs in one day. They called the Resolve Day bombings. On the Jeez. 30th of December, uh, 2000. Jeez, yeah. So, um, so he's with he's working with Hambali on the Singapore plot and the Manila plot, and we were able to snatch him up before he could execute on the Manila plot. He had a thousand pounds of commercial grade, grade explosives and six spools of debt cord and M16s and all that stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, we were we were up to our eyeballs and and in terrorist plots, and people don't know how how active the asian area was with these al-qaeda elements uh, uh, um you know abu Saif kind of uh was more which was a more indigenous philippine group yeah. but they were they were being um sponsored uh, by the uh, j.i jamia Samia, which is a very strong and dangerous indonesian terrorist group yeah and indonesia and, and the philippines are very close by they're close islands so they were sending bomb makers and bomb trainers and all this stuff through. So we were dealing with their, the collateral, which is the Abu Sayyaf was getting more trained and they were going after, um, after people blowing stuff up. It, it killed, they killed a special forces sergeant. I was part of the operation that got that guy, yeah, Indonesian wow. bomber. That's so true. we were, it was, it was a really busy three years. I, yeah. uh, I, yeah. uh, that was a great moment. And then I, I came out of that and I, the Iraq war was going on and um, uh, I ended up uh, being asked to put in for the, the head of security for all of our operations in Iraq. So I, I ended up um, in 2004, I went to Iraq and I was there for a year. Yeah. Wow. What, what's um, like, you know, the, the op-tempo for you pre 9-11 and then post 9-11, like, are you because it's such a small unit, all the units that you've been part of, you know, like the four man teams and, and that sort of stuff, are, are you just sort of 24 seven on the go or um, do you cycle yeah, you get, in and out? Um, you, get, 
Yeah, no, you go, you go. I mean, like when I was, when I was working the Burnhams, I, we were working 16 hour days, yeah. seven days a week. Um, because we were really trying to get these guys back yeah. and uh, they, they slaughtered most of them. They, in fact, uh, yeah, unfortunately only one of, one of them made it back the, yeah, right. to life. And um, when I went to Iraq, holy mackerel, we were, we had half a day off uh, um, a week. Yeah. Half a day. And, yeah. and by this stage, obviously, you know, you guys, um, you know, contrasting to when you first started out in Mogadishu where it's a brand new unit, never before sort of done, you've obviously established yourselves as you know, I'd say like the premier, you know, team uh, in, in what you were doing. Um, did you have an opportunity to work with a lot of other agencies? Um, you know, you mentioned Delta Force in, in Mogadishu. Um, was it the same case, uh, you know, post 9-11? Uh, was oh, yeah. that information oh, yeah. sharing there? Um, you know, how yeah, was so that we, like? were, we, we learned a lot. We learned some lessons from um, not only Mogadishu, where we didn't, we weren't coordinating as closely as we should have. Right. Because we, it, was, it was just new. And then we did better in Bosnia. And then we did uh, much better in, in Iraq. And then we really did well uh, later on in some of the other areas, yeah. Iraq, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. Um, and so uh, because of kind of the nature of what I was doing, I was at the tip of the spear thing. Those are the guys that work there. So um, when I was in Mogadishu, I worked with four SEAL Team 6 guys uh, who were, uh, they were what they call sheep dipped. They were detailed to us. Yeah. And that allows them to do some stuff that they can't do right. as part of the military. And sheep dipping goes back to um, the Phoenix program and Mac V SOC in Vietnam. So that's a, I mean, the SEALs, SEAL Team 6, when they went in to get bin Laden, were working for the agency yeah they weren't working for the military yeah because the roes were, were you know were different they weren't um bound by the laws that you know your your military title all their it's higher level than it's a, a title 10 title yeah yeah and it, it just it's a legality part and it's the way we we operate now where well, brains and brawn kind of thing yeah like in iraq when i got to iraq we were doing one of the reasons why we, we decimated um al-qaeda and, and isis later on is the is the coordination the, the uh, interagency coordination? I mean, yeah. we're literally we were eating, sleeping, living, working together. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the task force, which are made up of all these spec op groups, and the agency, and we had NGA Nas- National Geospatial people. That's the mapping people. Yeah. And we had um, analysts that were previously only lived at headquarters. They were out in the field with us, getting yeah. real time. So it was a it was a transformation. And when That's we do perfect. it right, it's it's because oh, we're do, we're feeding on the intel every time there's a hit, we're we're taking the data, exploiting it real time and hitting the next place. Yeah, and they never get a chance to get their balance. Yeah, so it's it was and fascinating. There's some um, you know surgical sort of precision hits as well as opposed to, um, you know the, the hammer. You're you're more of a scalpel now, I suppose. Yes, very much so. Yeah, we're we're, we're talking about. Um, the, the the ISR the uh, which is the, the, the eyes in the sky type stuff yeah. using satellite imagery, um, and I got to learn a lot more about that stuff because I, I after I left Iraq I ended up later in my career working for the NRO the National uh, Reconnaissance Office and that's okay. the office that handles the satellites yeah and um, so yeah, in addition to the um, 
you know, the lessons learned and, and your new tactics with, with all the other units and agencies. Um, I, I'd imagine like kit would have changed as well. So, you know, what, what, no. were you, what kind of, what was your first, um, like your firearms training? I, I think I remember hearing on another podcast, it was a wheel gun, wasn't it? It was a, we started out security. We were carrying, we were following the secret service. So we had uh, two and a half inch Smith and Wesson model yeah. uh, 19s. And then Later, we switched, uh, the uniform guy switched to um, a, a Ruger uh, with a longer barrel. Okay, yeah. Uh, P100s, I think it is. And then when I got into the pack, we were given the first six, SIG 226 um, yeah. semi-autos. Okay, and then later on, the whole agency moved on. But our, our history with weapons is kind of fascinating. The agency, the upside, um, uh, had Browning High Powers, and both oh, yeah. PPK. Yeah. yeah. And part of it was because those are rounds you can find all over the world. Sure. The guns aren't US and yeah. uh, they're very, very concealable. Yeah. Lower signature, uh, all that sort of stuff. In the U, uh, for, for the PAC, we were working with, you know, with M16s and, um, and SIG 226s. But then later on, we moved to the Glock. Yeah. And, but, um, but you're, you're right. Like when I first started, uh, GPS were three letters in the alphabet didn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah there was a yeah map and compass if they had a map yeah <laughs> all those places you know you go they don't have a map like yeah. mogadishu there were no maps yeah <laughs> um, so uh later on what, what happened was um the pack was all internal so you it was all security people either uniformed or uh generalists yeah um, SOs. okay but when I was in um, in Asia um, and the war kicked off, we couldn't keep up with the work. Yeah. So we started hiring contractors. And that's where the Blackwaters and the MVMs and the right. Triple Can. And what most people don't know is, uh, I mean, you've heard some different things about different groups, like Blackwater had some issues. Uh, but what you don't know, really, most people don't know is that um, the individuals, there are never enough uh high the high quality guys so when blackwater got a contract and mvm didn't the good guys from mvm slid over and worked for blackwater right yeah and when blackwater lost the contract to triple canopy they slid over yeah okay the other part that people don't understand is that um we had a special contract with all those elements we we vetted them in other words, they, we didn't take what they wanted. We, they knew that we were going to vet these guys. And so if they sent us people who are not qualified, we would, um, it would hurt them in terms of getting a later contract. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And we would, we, would, we would mark them down in the book. Yeah. Uh, you know, Joe Schmo showed up and he's never to be on our list again. Yeah. So good, good sort of quality control on your part then. So, and we were, I mean, I, I don't want to sound too much like, like I'm bragging, but I will tell you that um, the, the, the casualty rate among the POC slash GRS is, um, is so low yeah. compared to all the other State Department elements, et cetera. We and operated low profile. And it's incredible as well, because you know, you're, you're out there generally being low profile also means that you're going to be in soft skin vehicles, not up armored. You probably don't have the air assets like other, you know, sort of um, entities right. have. 
Um, you're, you're really utilizing that trade craft that you've you've you know built up over the you years. You don't see me. You can't shoot me. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's I mean that's a testament to the you, not only your training but the real time missions that you you guys have developed your TTPs from. And yeah, it's an incredible story. Um, so, but we were clandestine. Yeah. Nobody knew about. It. So yeah. even I mean up until um, Benghazi and um, the thirteen hours book and movie. Uh, which, by the way, neither the book nor the movie were approved. Yeah. <laughs> right. that, that material was never vetted. Yeah. Okay. Um, it was a political thing, but anyways. Yeah. Um, yeah. We we were operating, and uh, we did have we did have armored cars. We just didn't have we weren't driving in suburbans and expeditions. Yeah, and that, sure. Because they like to shoot those. We, in fact, the Mercedes G wagon. Yeah, we that, that nickname for that was the bullet magnet. The bullet magnet. I was going to say. <laughs> oh my God! You can't miss it. It's a big boxy thing. Yeah. And so what we would be, we want them to walk to, to to be looking at us as we're driving by, and go, what what was that? And by the time they start scratching their head, thinking maybe they should shoot it, we're already You're out of there. Yeah. So, um, we we really only lost. We haven't. We didn't lose any protectees. And we've only lost, well, I, I'm just going to say less than four yeah, well, doing our primary well. mission. Yeah, I mean, and I'm talking about from the beginning in 1990 to uh, till 2013 when I, right. when I returned. So incredible. Uh, yeah. And um, every, all, almost all the guys that we lost, um, other than that, that four I was talking about, the ones that we did lose like that, were in situations like coast or Benghazi. Yeah. When we're not doing our primary, we're doing base defense. Yeah. Yeah. If you understand, if you know about the story about coast, um, if you, I'll tell you that Hollywood never gets it right, pretty much, with one exception. They did uh, a real good job with um, Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. Zero Dark Thirty is pretty damn well spot on with a few. I, the, the main hero in that uh, we was um, was a lady named Maya. Yeah, that's her the movie name. I work with Maya, and I know I know background. She did. She never got blown up in the Marriott. She never got shot. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Anyways, that, that, that level Hollywood. of um, you know Hollywood. Yeah. yeah, but they got they got unprecedented access to yeah. to six guys to our people. Later on, that was that was a bit. Um, there was regrets right. in, the, in the Intel community for allowing that much exposure. But I'm just saying, if you want to know about the war on terror in a, in a movie, that's a good you know, start. Point. A couple hours. That's a great one. And I'll just say this: um, I don't want to get into the, into the politics, but um, whether you agree with enhanced interrogation or not, whether you think we should or shouldn't do it doesn't change the fact that it was it was effective yeah exactly I, i'm like you like like this podcast I, I you know i make clear sort of um on a few episodes now that you know it's not a political podcast whatsoever um what's done is done there was you know the the results speak for themselves um like you said whether you agree or not um worse things are done on the other side to you know to to the enemies to each other and then the enemy to you know to sort of the allied forces yeah, wars. So, or is ugly exactly and, right um, they did the, the throat cutting that i 
had to be exposed to in terms of videos and material that we would have to recover yeah. and go through. Okay. I mean, uh, that stuff, it was horrific. Yeah. And finally, finally, these, these bloodthirsty bastards figured out that it wasn't helping their cause. Yeah. Or, I mean, it was, it was like, they were killing everybody. I mean, Muslims and non-Muslims. Yes, exactly. I mean, you look at, you know, some of the propaganda that ISIS had where they capture fighters, put them in cages, torch them. Um, you know, that's yeah. just, and then even closer to, I suppose, America's borders where you have cartels, um, you know, skinning, oh, yeah. skinning their um, competition alive, that sort of thing. So, you know, it's, it's brutal. Um, it's, you know, no one wants to do anything like that, but it's done. Uh, and to be honest, you know, the enhanced interrogation where you're talking about you know, you're putting a bit of cloth on someone's face and pouring water. It's very different to burning somebody alive. You know what I mean? So. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, loud music for uh, 18 hours. Uh, yeah. I mean, people go to people pay for a concert like that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 whether or not we ever want to do that again, that's that's to, that's not my purview. No, ex exactly. I'm just saying that I was around for. I had more. You know, I'm I'm a, I was at the right where the action was yeah. for so long. I was a, I was mainly an overseas guy. That's yeah. I, I, I'm the longest I spent in one place was the three years I was posted in Asia yeah. out of 24 years. Incredible. So uh, I was always on the road. On the go, yeah. I was always where these things were going on. Like what I mean, things is as in our, our action operations, really when we're really working against the bad guys. Yeah. So I got this. Um, if somebody's really interested in, in learning more about, the, the truth about that they should read the book um hard measures by jose rodriguez hard jose measure. rodriguez was the head of the counterterrorism center and during all that okay and uh i work with him i i read the book i was blown away that they even allowed him to do 25 percent of that book but it's i mean it's a, it's unbelievable what, what's what's put in that book okay. so and it clears the air on a lot of things yeah. Um, because there's a lot of misconceptions and there's a lot of people talking out of school. Yeah. And I'll just, that. um, yeah. So, um, it, I, I, I just got lucky in terms of my career. It, well, depends on your point of view, but for me, I like to be where the action was. I like to be, um, by the time I got to Iraq, I was my whole career was about protecting our people. Yeah. I mean, one way or another. And when I became the head of security for like all our operations in the country, that's a heavy weight and right. um, it takes a toll, but it was incredibly satisfying. And, um, but it's the moving pieces that became, I mean, you've got hundreds and hundreds of people in locations all over Iraq and other places. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you're dealing with every aspect. I, I, that's where I really got into learning about the symptoms, signs and symptoms of PTSD or people having difficulty yeah. in working with a medical unit to, to help mitigate that. I mean, we had rules about how long you could stay in country uh, with, without a review because yeah. we knew there was like a four-month mark. Oh, yeah, the burnout. I mean, with, with that sort of up-tempo that you're talking about is, would, would just be um, through the roof. Um, and we were putting people in that weren't soldiers or ops people. Yeah. I mean, when we had a, we had a largest largest operation since Vietnam was in Baghdad. We had a camp that was, I mean, it was huge. It was self-sufficient. We, and uh, we had a bar and everything. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Very popular. And um, 
so we uh, we had cooks and cleaners and car mechanics and I mean these are people who who worked in Virginia before that yeah they they've never been to a war zone so training them up and giving them some perspective and then helping them helping their families we had a course called the Iraqi fam course where we'd bring in their family members and tell them okay they're going to be overseas and this is what you know kind of what they're going to be doing so you need to help them don't be telling them about how the the refrigerator broke and you know they're going to be really distracted yeah when they should be oh wow um yeah and uh, you know the transition coming back stateside as well like just having them uh to you know just be able to sort of have that level of empathy yeah, we, we, we would do psychiatric interviews before and we would do um, workshops and different things afterwards because yeah. otherwise you've got little ticking time bombs. Yeah, exactly right. Because people won't, won't talk. Um, we, we touched on it a bit before when we mentioned Zero Dark Thirty, um, that hunt for bin Laden. Um, were, you, were you you were in Iraq at that time, like around around the time that he got... No, I was... Uh, okay, that the big real, the real hunt for him came on later okay came on uh in the the latter part of the of like what 2007 8 9 yeah and i was posted to the pakistan pakistan afghanistan area yeah for a year 15 months oh um horror story um <laughs> for a variety of reasons but um we doubled in size there was a major push it was a huge push and my relationship with uh, Bin Laden actually started in Somalia because yeah. the Black Hawk Down incident was he sent a bunch of his uh, his uh, better fighters into Somalia to help them. Yeah. So that was my you know my first interaction with him, and then later on when I was um, in Khartoum, and then when I was in uh, working in uh, the things happening in the Philippines, mm-hmm. uh, those were all Al Qaeda. Yeah. elements he had his hand in, in in it all basically and then when i was in iraq there was stuff going on that he was sending in and he was involved in and then later on when i went when i was working pack uh, afghan stuff um we were going after him yeah now I, i'll be honest with you we pretty much figured out uh that he was being helped and that he was probably in pakistan yeah but when we discovered him and that um the fact that Pakistan got away with that is that's a travesty, but I won't, I won't go into too much detail about yeah. that. But that's that's pretty horrific, um, and um, that was a major that was a major coup for us. As a I I was um, involved in so many different aspects of that, supporting elements uh, that were working in in really dangerous places, yeah. um, you know, worrying about them day and night. I mean, some of these places, they if they had a medical emergency, they were dead. There was yeah. just no way we were able to. So no extraction, um, nothing like that. Yeah. Nope. No. So, and then I did a lot of traveling around in Pakistan on my own, um, or with another security officer, doing reviewing our our locations for security things. And I'd be alone on these um, MI seventeen Pakistani maintain Pakistani piloted helicopters. Yeah. Oh my God. Jeez. oh yeah that's uh, the, my last flight we almost didn't take off we were bouncing across the field it was so overloaded oh god <laughs> so i was so glad to never 
I, I won't be visiting Pakistan. Yeah. Anytime, so. <laughs> um, so, let's take us down to sort of yeah. the, the last bits of your career um, in the agency. What, what were you doing? And um, what was the decision? Like, just, yeah, just tell me about the decision to, okay. to leave. I, 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 after Pakistan, I, I kind of needed a break. So yeah. I thought, well, I'll go, I'll do a domestic assignment. I'll do a, I'll detail over to the NRO and be the head of security there's uh, for the largest mission ground station they have. And if you, the NRO is kind of a, well, it was kind of a very hidden element until, until not too far back. And the National Reconnaissance Office builds, launches, and maintains the satellite systems that we have. And they're the ones that make sure that the data comes down. Yeah. And the data goes on to, to the owners. NGA, National Geospatial, that's all the mapping people. NSA, National Security Agency for all the SIGIN, ELINT, all the different things, INTS, int, int, yeah. right? Uh, then uh, military, all, you know. So, so I went to work for the, the largest mission ground station. And um, uh, what I didn't realize is how important that, that place was. Can't go down, it's 24 hour, right. 365. Yeah. And there were all kinds of, it was, 70, 70% contractor. We had all the military elements. We had foreign uh, intel people there. Yeah. Yeah. That's the weirdest thing. Walking around in a, in a classified area and you hear a British voice. Different accents. Voices. And it was, it was um, the bureaucracy was more than I'd ever experienced. And I had a crew, I had a, a very large crew. I had 3,700 people that I was responsible for. Yeah. Um, and we were dealing with all the, any issue you can imagine. It was a huge job. Um, I did two years there and that was enough. And then <laughs> I, I went back to Washington. I took a six month sabbatical. Uh, went, I went travel Asia and did some things I wanted to do. And, um, and then I, I went, went back and I, I worked in the counterterrorism center again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right back. <laughs> I was supporting. I was supporting Afghan, um, Afghan, um, Pak area, and mainly Afghanistan. And um, that's when I got heavily involved in the drawdown from Afghanistan. Yeah. And I was working with the with the committees that are that are working to withdraw from Afghanistan. Yeah. This is 2011 and 2000. 12 and then up to 2013 okay so we are closing bases we are moving equipment with a with a drop dead date to be out of afghanistan in 2014 okay yeah seven years before uh obviously what's happening yes well i retired in 2013 because at that point um I had been away from the main building too long, and the politics are: if you don't, if you don't work in the main building enough, uh, you won't get some of the cream of the crop jobs. Right. And I, what I wanted was a was a London Post or a Bangkok Post or something really nice like that. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, they say don't be careful what you get good at. Yeah, I was the guy that they could count on to go to the worst places. Yeah, and at that point, I'm. I, I lost count of how many cat lives and I was done with the war zones. Uh, I, you know, they, uh, they kind of whispered Yemen, Syria. And I, I'm like, no, I'm uh, time for the youngsters to step up. Yeah. So, and, uh, and uh, I kind of done everything I 
wanted to do. Um, I would have liked to have gone into the training aspect and, and, and stayed with that because I was uniquely qualified for that, but it didn't work out. So I, I retired in 13 after uh, 24 years and uh, age 50. So uh, yeah, right. So you can imagine that when 2014 happened and I didn't see us out of Afghanistan, in fact, I, I heard nothing. It was dead silence. Yeah. I was a little amazed because from the briefings I had, and if you ask anybody or do the research, the, the Taliban had already started to take back territory back then. We, sure. we knew it was over. Yeah. And I'm, again, this is not a political, I, I'm, I'm giving you some historical data that directly relates to what's going on here. Yeah. As part of my duties, not only as part of that committee to work on withdrawal, I was uh, directly involved in emergency destruction, emergency evacuation plans for all of our stations and bases around the world. Yeah. In fact, I wrote um, some new training guides and some new manuals and all that. And I got a, a, as part of, it was as part of, uh, of what I did that, uh, that got me an award when I, when I left, a career intelligence medal. Uh, so, I know uh, very um, accurately how we operate in terms of evacuating from, and uh, what what we just witnessed does not match anything that I'd ever seen before. Yeah. So um, I, I find yeah. it hard to believe, um, you know, when when they stand in front of the cameras and say, "Well, we didn't." Uh, anticipate this happening it was like well i'm pretty sure you have the brightest minds working on this 24 7 and um you know just basic terms like the way that i live my life on an everyday basis is you know i follow like a pace plan so like you know your primary alternate contingency like it boggles the mind that you know they at, had at such a high level that you wouldn't have these contingency plans no that's that's um i call bs on that the other part was they say that they thought they were going to be in the embassy we don't even have representation in the embassy who right. gave up our sovereign territory uh so we, how is that that's a route yeah that's a retreat that's not an organized uh you when you give up your diplomatic facilities yeah, complete in the country <laughs> that's right let's get that's, over i'm sorry you, you there's no way you can make those two match no it's yeah we, insane yeah. So, anyways, uh, I, I, because I had again uh, the Forrest Gump syndrome, I seem to have been in places and unique moments, um, <laughs> and you know, having worked the withdrawal plan with State Department and the military. Yeah. So it's uh, I, I was shocked. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and. Quite frankly, I'm 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 worried we've gone we've gone back to what I saw the Middle East was back in uh, 1989, when things were really bad. We got to a point where it was, where it was pretty pretty benign. Yeah. But, uh, we lost our allies in the area. We we are, we now have many places where bad guys can um, train and um, and uh, uh, prepare uh, operations to go uh, uh, against us. So, and even just the safe, uh, you know, safe harboring. Um, we, we mentioned it previously, like with Yugoslavia, where, you know, as soon as there's a, you know, a power shift or a vacuum, 
all these different elements come uh come creeping up again and uh i think you're right when you say yeah it's it's sort of back to sort of the 80s um early 90s in that part of the world which is really unfortunate for the last you know 20 odd years that that um operations have been going on um in that part of the world uh what 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 was it like leaving you know an organization like the cia like do you sort of become like persona non grata like where you know oh we don't know tom anymore because i mean you know you don't want to go away as a disgruntled employee no that's a a bad term that that's about that's pretty close to the worst thing you can be called yeah um i uh i left and uh and then i the 13 hours book and movie came out and at that point we a major part of my life had been working with that protection element. And I was kind of the unofficial historian until I left. Uh, yeah. I transferred. I had documentation. I'd been involved in so many different things over the years. I was a member. I was a, I was a senior team leader. I, I, I ran. I was this, um, the head of security for these countries where they were um, operating. So I, I, I worked every angle with those guys, right? Yeah. Um, so I said, well, uh, they, they didn't really explain the book or the movie doesn't explain that it didn't start at, in 9-11. It started in 1990 in Asia and that there was all this history before. And I thought it was worthy to discuss it because um, the, the methodology we, we developed ha- was and, ha- and has and still is really effective. Yeah. And um, and it allowed us to do some things that, that we wouldn't have been able to do. So um, now it took me over two and a half years to get through the publication review process. And that was, I will say some, that sucked. Yeah. The, the agency did a shitty job. Yeah. Um, they, sat my, they sat my manuscript on the, on the wall for a year and then hoped that I would go away. And then I had to go and, and, and fight them tooth and nail um i mean if i showed you the number of redactions it was i could cut i could wallpaper the floor in my apartment um and a lot of it was just ridiculous but i'm not the only one this is not uncommon what happens is there's pendulum swing and in history and uh there's times when they're more apt to allow books and there's times when they're they're cutting it they after 13 hours and they they wanted to shut down yeah okay yeah They, they wanted it shut down so I, I, I caught the wrong end of the pension swing. Now, I was lucky to get some things out. Like my book talks about stuff that has never been discussed. I tell you that one time, uh, other than that uh, unofficial uh, version uh, of that unit, and then the aspects of what the POC did um, prior to uh, 9-11, never been talked about. So uh, I, I, I wrote it for three audiences. I wrote, I wrote it for my, my colleagues, my, my, uh, the security people, for the for the uh, the POC and the GRS guys that uh, uh, so they can show somebody yeah. in their family what they do um, for people who are um, interested in that subject area and then if people who just want to learn something new and they don't know anything about it so yeah. I wrote it so that it, it it was a it was not too in depth now part of it I can't go into people say well you don't talk much about sources and methods that's right i don't it's yeah, not allowed exactly <laughs> and i wouldn't want to anyways yeah. but um you know and there's certain certain parts certain locations i, I can't talk about and i, I signed a, a non-disclosure and it's for life yeah 
and you know 23 out of 24 years you're undercover was it a bit of a cathartic experience um you know putting uh you know your your thoughts over that absolutely. career to paper absolutely and and um you asked a really good question when you're in an organization that is that different and your life goes so different than your friends and family mm. um it's kind of a bad word but it helps on it, you're institutionalized you're yeah. you're in a different world yeah. and sometimes i think we mistakenly think that we're we either either are not in that institutional that special world or we think we can go back to the regular world sure yeah the truth is we really can't you, you kind of you can find a happy place yeah. this is where this this is like the transition for military people um or other uh federal agencies that are similar with with a different really a different lifestyle yeah getting over that and understanding that you're different and then you're going to have to do things and adjust um yeah so it, it's taken me, I mean, I'm still in adjustment. Yeah. Um, is is because it's just too much of a dramatic lifestyle difference. Oh, exactly. And um, it, it's not like you can dip in and out of both worlds. You know, you, you, you sort of spent your, you know, 24 years, 23 years living in the shadows uh, in the worst parts of the world where, you know, no, no one's writing postcards uh, from or to. Um, nope. But just on the book as well. So it's called uh, Guardian Life in the Crosshairs of the CIA's War on Terror, just for anyone um, uh, listening who's, who's wondering. Uh, that's on Amazon, is that right? Yes, it's yeah. in Kindle and on Amazon. And uh, I have a website for the book that has better pictures. I, it's uh, as a um, color photos. In the book, they're black and white. Okay, yeah. And some interesting photos in there. But, uh, yeah, amazing. Yeah. And your personal life at this, you know, throughout the 20, 24 years of service, um, did you have a family, wife, kids, anything like that? I, I have a daughter and uh, I didn't meet her till she was 10. Okay. And uh, uh, she, <laughs> uh, remember I mentioned I was in England? Yeah. Was, uh, 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 program? Yeah. 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 Uh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but from that moment on, I, I, I've been, you know, in her life. And for me, the, the culmination when I retired was really to spend more time with her. And now she's married and I, I was at her, you know, I, I, I walked her down the aisle at her wedding, which is oh, incredible. Experience. Yeah, wow. And now I have a granddaughter and I'm going over there to see her for Christmas. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's huge for me. That's, um, that's and the, incredible. And the, the book gave me a chance to, as I said, talk about stuff. I would never have talked about yeah. if I didn't know I could talk about it, you know, that I didn't get approval. So, um, and it helps my family uh, understand, you know, what I was doing and why. Sure. Um, you know, in, in these sorts of uh, situations where your you know, shit's hit the fan, um, you're, you're basically in survival mode. I know a lot of, um, you know, read a few books and watched some documentaries of things like SEER training, the survive, escape, mm. resist, evade. Um, and, and some people talk about going like to their happy place. You know, what was your um, your happy place? Or did, you're did hearing you have... a lot of noise behind me. Right? I don't know if you're hearing this, but I'm in the middle a torrential downpour. There's oh, a tropical storm. I, 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 I'm from Kuala Lumpur, yeah, so I miss the uh, torrential rains. That's uh, ah, yeah, okay. reminds, reminds well, me. Of home. It's coming down right now. So, <laughs> um, my happy place. Uh, I like the. I'm in the Philippines now because. This is kind of where I feel comfortable. Yeah. I lived uh, I lived in this area before. Uh, I have a lot of friends here. 
Yeah. I like the warmer weather. I hate the cold. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I suffered in Bosnia and, <laughs> and in Milwaukee too my whole life. I hated the snow. Yeah. So, um, and there's a lot of expats yes. and people that have a, a more similar view. That global sort of perspective. Yeah, and um, also they're younger. You know, there's younger retirees. Yeah. When I was back in Milwaukee, I lived there from 2016 to 2019 everybody's working and raising a family and yeah. there I am. So that's another part that makes it difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, yeah. I definitely, I miss uh, Southeast Asia. I'm dying to go back as uh, like, I've, I've got a two little ones and uh, you know, my parents still haven't met our youngest. So uh, you know, when the, when the virus sort of uh, you know, everyone calms down a bit, maybe we can, we can get to that side of the world, but um, yeah, I definitely miss, um, miss Asia. Um, uh, you know, thanks again for for being on the podcast um so what what what's present day like for you and you know what's what's the future um for for tom pecora oh i i i'm enjoying um teaching i'm still involved in personal safety so i still i like to be doing what i've done which is help people be safe so i'm very involved in in doing a training course on situational awareness yeah which is a real in-depth uh uh, training course it's four hours i do for a, a company called our curie group yeah and uh so i do that i do uh two three to four training sessions a month uh, by zoom yeah <laughs> and um and i uh i do some hash house harrier hiking through the woods the jungles here nice and um keep busy with that that's that's pretty much it my work i like I like to write articles on things, so uh, my, mainly personal safety stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm I'm the full time work thing is, you know, I'm not interested anymore. Yeah, uh, no, that's it. And you got to enjoy yourself now. That's it. That's um, I'm working so, out. Yeah. So if you know, if anyone's wondering, the the, the way that I got in touch with Tom was um, uh, I, I I took the um, situational awareness uh, specialist and then became a advanced practitioner um and basically just connected on linkedin uh, i was just great networking um it's something I, I wish i did done more in you know my previous profession as a police officer um but you know you, you're sort of a bit more private and um you know it's it's something that i'm enjoying now meeting all these people uh and that's why i started this podcast um but in, in terms of that sas um situational awareness um course i would you know recommend it even if you weren't with a uh security background i think it's really helpful for um any profession really whether you know you're a teacher um you know whether you work in a in a public sort of setting uh that sort of thing it just it just gets your mind to work in, an, in another way that you know you might not necessarily um have thought of previously to uh, previously taking the course um so how can people get in touch with you if they if they want to you know jump on the course or or have a chat oh well, that sort of thing hit the um uh, you can put in our curie group a-R-C-U-R-I group yep. or uh, I think it's www.situationawarenesstraining uh, um, uh, and it'll the website will take you there. Awesome. So those are the best ways because we've got courses going, as I said, about, uh, two or more times a month, yep. uh, different time zones. I kind of hit the, uh, I have to do East Coast a lot, which means I'm up at late or yeah. <laughs> uh, the Asian stuff is, is earlier in the morning. Nice. Um, so yeah, it's it's with the world. Yeah, I don't I don't like to follow the pattern of uh, it's getting more and more dangerous because I think in some ways it's not. Yeah. Um, but I think people want to be more capable, 
in their environment. They want to be, they want to feel um, uh, more empowered that they're that they're handling their own safety yeah. and their own and their family safety. Yeah, and uh, I think that's a that's a great thing. And you know the old Not cliche. Paranoia. No, it, well, it's uh, to me, it's like knowledge is power, as the old cliche goes. Yeah. Um, it's just that's adding it, another skill, another skill to your uh, toolbox. Um, how, how's the Philippines going at the moment? Like, I, I think a lot of people don't realize. Um, you know, when we mentioned Southeast Asia, it doesn't really get a lot of press. Uh, you know, in, in global sort of news, in terms of the relationship that the U.S. and the Philippines have. So, as, as an American yeah. living in the Philippines, is, is it quite nice? Because I know there's a lot of love for you know for Americans. There's a lot of history shared. Um, oh, in terms yeah. of war fighting specifically, I think in would have been World War II, you know, sort, sort of oh, from yeah. that era. Um, Bataan Death March and yeah. Yeah, exactly There's a, right. The largest, okay, I'm biased, but I, I think the, the, the best U.S. cemetery in the outside of the United States is here in the Philippines, in Manila. It's the, okay, yeah. um, it's the Philippine American uh, War uh, Cemetery. And it is, it, it's, the only thing that's close is maybe Normandy. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And you have Americans and Filipinos buried in, in, the, in the same cemetery because they lived and died fighting side by side. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, that relationship um, is still strong. The, there, there is that bond that, that hasn't gone away. Yeah. And um, so that's really nice. Filipinos are great people. They, they just, they, they always score at the top on, on the happiness scale. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They just have figured out a way to, to be happy regardless of how tough things are. Yeah. And that's really a great trait. And they're very, um, uh, they, they figure stuff out and they're great singers <laughs> um, and great bowlers. It's amazing. Yeah. And pool players. So they're, yeah. they're um, for me, I, I, you get more eye contact, positive eye contact in the Philippines more than any place I'd ever been. Yeah. So oh, it's a good place to be yeah. then. Yeah, it is. Uh, that's brilliant. Tom, thank you so much, you know, from uh, your, your beginnings in Milwaukee, uh, you know, working at your JC Penny uh, to <laughs> reading an ad in the newspaper. And then, you know, fast forward 24 years later and uh, working in some of the most incredible places. Um, and, and, you know, I just want to say thank you for your service. Uh, thank you for everything you've done for, you know, not just your, your country and your countrymen, but, um, you know, the, the world over. Uh, and it's been an absolute honor having you on this podcast. My pleasure. All right, see you guys.